Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Paula Price Show, where you can experience scripturally organic, culturally unmodified teaching, get answers to your questions, and receive powerful prayer from your host, Dr. Paula Price, author of the Prophet's Dictionary. Tune in now and get ready for an exciting time of encouragement and transformation. Welcome your host, Dr. Paula Price. Possibly kicking off today's broadcast. If you have not been around the last several weeks, where have you been? Share, tell a friend, tell an enemy, message somebody, tag somebody. She is continuing in the theme of leadership today. I tell you what, these lessons are gold, absolute gold. I've been here for over 20 years, and I know it of what I speaketh. Gold, gold, gold. The last several broadcasts, she has been talking about the novice, the novice mentality, the spirit of a novice. And I have been just doing a lot of introspection. I don't know about you, but I've been doing a lot of introspection myself. I'm in my apostleship training, studying my books, various books going on at once. And, um, you know, asking the Lord, where am I still a novice? Where do I still have these certain mentalities? Where am I underdeveloped and stuck? Because if you come at your training like you already know that you're going to miss the lion's share of what you're supposed to learn or it's going to roll off of your back because that's good information for someone else. I remember when I had to learn it the first time like you've never had to learn it beforehand. Last week, she said some pivotal, pivotal things. So if you've been tuning in these last several weeks, I want you to talk back in the comments, in the feed. What have you learned about being a novice? Hallelujah. Some of the key things that stuck out, and now that I am, and it really long since been on this side of training, more in the front of the classroom than in the seats in the classroom, sometimes it's easy to forget you still need to have a student posture even when you're the teacher. It's easy because uh, you'll think, whoa, you know, Prophet Angela knows, well, it's like when you graduate or anybody who's been in school, everybody in here has been in school, and whenever you get done with whatever training program, you're so happy to not be a student. Holla. Ooh, the homework, thank you. Jesus, it's over. My God, nobody's going to tell. I'm not going to be up all night working on this final, this midterm, these papers, this information. What am I going to need this anyway in my calling? What am I going to need this? We go into, most people go into education thinking, What's the minimum amount that I need to retain? What's the minimum amount that I need to pass? What does the teacher want to hear? So, Because uh, I don't want to waste my time studying something that's not going to be on the exam. This is our basic mentality about education, isn't it? We start off by thinking the least that we have to do to pass. Eh, some people are happy in the middle. <laughs> be average. Hi, see, just not failing. There are those of us who are like, I want to be at the top of my class, and I want to learn everything because I'm paying for all this. See, my mentality was, but we're paying for every credit hour. 
let's learn every credit hour. But I had to grow into that, bless his holy name. In the beginning, it was how many classes can I miss and still pass? How many assignments can I? And many people, especially when it comes to the things of God, because we've really taught that you actually don't need all of that. It's superfluous. It's extra. It's the blah, blah, blah. It's dry. I was told that once. We just want the wet things. This is just dry academia, Apostle Ashley. When are we going to get to the good stuff? I will never put a loaded mantle in your hands Well, you want to skip past the dry stuff and just get to the good stuff because you need it all to be good at the job. Last week, she honed on some key things. I mean, every week, really. Um, But she says that when you put a novice in position, talking about Apostle Paul, what he was saying, you guarantee their failure, and you also make them a target for Satan to destroy. These are things that we don't think about. Even when we're rushing to get to the finish line as a student, I don't want to, I mean, how many times do we hear, I don't want to be in school this long. I don't want to take this many classes. I don't, how many, just what do I, come on, I just need to get there and do the job, do the job. Nobody wants anybody in medicine to touch them who did the minimal requirements. I don't care if you're just clipping my toenails. You skipped toenail clipping class because you've been clipping your toenails your whole life? Hold on, but my toenails are different than your toenails. Maybe I have a foot situation that you need to know about. Maybe something else is going on. And, and so Dr. Price taught us years ago, I'm not going to be doing you any favors by pushing you into these positions and putting you into these offices before you're ready. We've been told from our early years as a praise and worship team, you all need to record. You need to record. You need to record. You're so good. You need to record. And she said, you're not ready. You're not ready for the other side of success. You're not ready for how the enemy stalks ministers, praise and worship leaders, dancers, whomever, all of us. She said, you're not ready. And I know you're not ready because you can't handle the little temptations here. You can't handle the ones on the local level. You can't handle the ones at the university level. How much can you not handle what is outside of that? The unexposure. She talked about how your sentiments are wrong. Training schools your sentiments, doesn't it? Listen, your maturity goes to a whole other level when you survive high-level academia. And you can take all kinds of pride in being self-taught. But when you go through the process of higher education and somebody else is assessing your success and a professional and an expert is breathing down your neck and somebody is picking apart your work, and it's not just the favorite people in your family who tell you that you're awesome and great, It's somebody who is at the pinnacle of their career telling you, well, you're okay. But if you want to be great and stay great and not be a one-hit wonder, then you need to do all of these other things for this amount of time. And most of us just want to be that one-hit wonder. We don't realize that's what we're saying. When we want to skip past the process, (laughs) jump ahead, how many classes can I test out of? How many things do I not, you will never, you are not testing out of anything here. You are not testing out. You, most people can't, they're like wrapping their head around the homework assignment, much less testing out of, the, well, I've had Bible before, but you haven't had 
this. That's like somebody saying, I don't have to go to culinary school because I grew up cooking in my house. And my family loves my cooking. The neighborhood loves my cooking. The PTA loves my cooking. That's great. Have you ever worked in a gourmet kitchen, though? Are you trying to do home diner? Are you doing gourmet? Are you doing – what are you specializing in here? And there's a whole world attached to your hobby. And many of us have been hobbying around in our mantles, dabbling here, dabbling there. I help this person. I help that person. I bless this person. I bless that person. But within the context of the institution of what you're called to do. That's great if you're a mom or you're a dad and you can always bind up the wounds of your children and you can wrap them up and put some antiseptic on and get the, the glue stitches and do all this kind of stuff. It's something else altogether when we're talking about surgery, isn't it? And actually having somebody put their life into your hands. Education gives you instincts, intuition, discernment, and all those other things that help you know one thing from another and how to use one thing from another. How many of us and, and anybody who's been in any career for a long time, there's something that blew up in your face. There's a situation that you knew you had handled. There was you just went in it, or something that looked like it was a run-of-the-mill, something you've done X amount of times, and then it turned into something. Those are the defining moments where you can realize, I don't know as much as I thought I knew. And it can be any career or any field. But when you're in training, your goal should not be how long until this training is over and I can just do whatever God called me to do, whether it's sports or ministry or anything in between. If that's your goal, you have already determined to dump most of what you've learned. How do I know? How do you know, Apostle Ashley? Because I know people right now who swear that they weren't taught certain things in their training program, and they were. Life went on, graduated, commissioned, ordained. Situations happen. Dr. Price comes back around, pours back in. Wow, this is amazing. Well, we never learned this. We never knew this. Yes, you did. Let's go to our notes. <laughs> I'll show you where we learned it. But if your goal is just to be done, you won't revisit your training. You won't revisit lectures. You will be so happy the homework is over. You're going to be triggered every time you think about it. And so you won't go back to review it. Preview. You can think now. How many of you who are in past your first or second semester or whatever training you're in have gone back and reviewed the notes of your previous semesters? How many have done that? And then afterwards, how many times have you said, let me just stay fresh in this. Let me revisit. Let me go back to. Let me go back through. But when you, your number one priority is just to be done, you will be mediocre at best in what you're doing, no matter what it is. At best, you'll be mediocre. You'll just be okay. And the people who revisit and retrain and keep themselves sharp, those are going to be the ones who get ahead and stay ahead. Hello? Yes, Lord. Okay. We're, we're in the show, sir. <laughs> the phone was ringing in the studio. Turn your phones up, saints. Turn them down. All right? Turn them down. <laughs> Anybody ever learned that lesson the hard way, where you really should have went back to review something? 
really should have. You underestimated the situation, underestimated what it was going to cost you, underestimated. And how many times have you been warned? How many times have you been notified? How many times is this like you want to do this, you want to do that, but the novice is always trying to prove they don't need the training. Years in something and still be a novice in your mind and in your spirit and in your soul. Because you believe that time served means excellence achieved. And it has not. It has not. That novice, and Dr. Price has said it repeatedly, she'll know who is going to rise and be a rock star, not from where they start, but from how they handle training, how they pursue training. Are you the person who only digs deep whenever you got in trouble? Well, here comes, or no, here's, here's what I love. Well, hey, Dr. Price, how you doing? I thought I saw your shadow moving through. Your silhouette. Shadow and substance. <laughs> shadow and substance. Yeah, you are definitely substance. Did you guys see the broadcast last night, the interview? My, my, my. Well, the studio was full here. But she said that she can always recognize, in essence, who's going to be the rock star, not by who knows the most, not by who talks the best, the most articulate, but by how you respond to development, training, and correction. Woo! How you respond to correction, I think, says the most about what type of student, mentee, mentor, trainer, trainee you will ultimately become. Because if you hate and resent correction, then you will always soft-foot it with other people. You'll understand their issues with it. You'll sympathize with their problems. And then you will actually perpetuate the problem instead of correcting it yourself. Because you'll measure it by how you felt and really disagreed with the process that you had to go through to get to where you are. Well, and I, I mean, I've seen this with Dr. Price. Well, she's just so heavy-handed. She's just so hard. She's just so whatever. And then... It takes years for a seed, sometimes like in people, to become mature. So you can judge in a season, but it takes several seasons to see and find out, that was actually the right thing to do. Wow, that was really correct. I really missed that because if you're listening to the sentiment of people's pain (laughs) in their correction and you let that govern your leadership, you are going to become a poor leader, as Dr. Price calls the union rep leader. (laughs) You're always representing the people and saving them from that big, bad institution and not the other way around. Hey, how you doing? I am, like, all blessed up and happy in the Lord. And, I, you know, what I like about unity, the spirit of unity, is that it shows up in everything. Mm -hmm. Today I am talking about leadership. I did get that uh, uh-huh. as a as a for knowledge. It, it did come through a text, but I was going to. But we're reviewing last week as well, staying in our theme of leadership. Well, and, and the reason that I'm talking about leadership is because over the last couple of weeks we talked about novices, mm-hmm. etc., and novices can only get in position by leaders. How about that? Leaders put novices in position. Mm-hmm. You know, now you have, because even if you jump out on your own, it's a leader that has to let you in the door. Right. Let you in front of their people uh, or speak or be, act on their behalf. And many people don't understand that leadership is about acting on behalf of the organization, the institution. 
It is not acting in your own best interest. As a matter of fact, there's a phrase that literally, uh, you know, uh, frowns on that called conflict of interest. True. So a company can let you go for conflict of interest. Maybe God is letting people go because of their conflict of interest. Their interests are superseding his interests and his purposes for doing what he does. So I'm excited today. If you're a leader, I want you to share, go and share with all of your other leader friends and your followers. I could probably help you out. So get your followers on the broadcast as well. And so, um, so you want to have as many people get on and say, she's talking about leadership. Because what I did last week and then the week before, it, to me, it requires us to go back to the top. I have, it takes a while to get a leadership mind. It really does. It takes a good while because we are all born to be self-serving. And if we're going to sacrifice, it's going to be a matter of force or a matter of expediency. So it's always a trade-off. We're born care of ourselves. So the idea of a leader, or let's go back, the idea of a servant has to come from a person who sees others' interests or needs as greater than their own, their own, but also as gratifying and satisfying their purpose in life. You will never be a better servant than you are a better uh, empath or sympathetic. Leaders have to be empathic. You've got to feel for the organization. In my Friday broadcast, I said, but we don't, you know, you guys don't even empathize with God, the losses that he's suffering, the generations that he's never going to get back. Because when he gets them back, they're going to be an old generation, not an up-and-coming one. The, the, the people, the families that he must judge because these leaders made poor decisions and have a poor leadership consciousness as well as cognizance. We gave, he said to me very clearly, and I'll probably keep saying it for a while, he said, but they gave me a future I can't do anything with. I want you to hashtag that. Though this watch gave God a future he can do nothing with. He must judge it. He must censor it. He must condemn it. He must repair it, but he cannot thrive from it. There is nothing thriving about the generation that this watch handed off to you who are up and coming. And I want you to think about that because when I train my my leaders, I train them for what God is going to face when their time comes. For your um, your little job and your little whatever, do you realize that if you are effective with God, he's going to give you all the creature comforts it takes to keep you in service? That's right. Because he doesn't need you distracted. But we don't want to earn those creature comforts. We want to demand them, and then we just want to snatch and grab them. But God will keep you comfortable if you are valuable to him. Like any other leader, if you work for a, 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 a human corporation and you end up to be what they call the most valuable employee, they have all kinds of comforts for you. They don't want you distracted. They don't want you off your post. They don't want you having to to waste your time and talents on insignificant things. But God started it first. And so we have been taught so much that God doesn't want us comfortable or he doesn't want us, uh, all he wants us to do is have the hard life in Christianity that we haven't read the scripture. 
to do David's job, God had to surround David with all kinds of power and wealth throughout his training. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about God having Moses wealthy, first in Egypt, then in Midian. How about Abraham? I need Abraham to pass on this faith and circumcision thing. And, and Abraham, he made Abraham bountiful. And we can go on and on and on. But he does it for his own interest because God, we, are, we act as if we're, we're independent of God's future. We're independent of God's purposes. Job. God was so pleased with Job, and he wanted Job to be the number one uncontested, indisputed, number one. He wanted them, him to be there so much that Satan testified. This is something you don't hear about Job. Satan testified, I can't get at this guy. You have him so hedged up, I can't get to him. What was Job doing? He wasn't demanding. He was doing his job, and as a result of doing his job, God prospered him. The people that he got out of trouble reached back to sow for him, take care of him. The leaders that he upheld or the wicked ones that he removed were all rewarded. So you have to recognize you're asking God to give you something for nothing. That whole name it, claim it, snatch it, take it, break it, break it, all of that is a something-for-nothing mentality. And oftentimes, if you don't have the right leader or you're not connected with the leader that's connected with the Almighty, they're going to follow one trend after another, one fad after another. When I look at all of the analysis of the leadership crisis that we have in the world today and in the church, everything is about a trend. So let me tell you something. God doesn't trend. He makes set trends, but God doesn't trend. You know why? Because he said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord. I change not. So you either fall into God's way or fall out of God's way. He will not vary his way for generations. He will not vary his way for culture. He will not vary his way for current events, political expedience, humanist agenda. God won't change. You either are in or out, and it's just that hard line. And it's in or out. In, you get blessed. In, you're, you're insulated, you're protected. Out, you suffer the consequences of the commandments of men, the ways of this world, doctrines of devils, and seducing spirits. God won't change. You, if you're waiting for God, so like all of these trends, you know, there's a trend in the church, and there's another trend coming up, and we notice that the church isn't doing this. God could care less about that. I'm telling you, you are changing. You're putting all of this money. You put all this money in seeker-friendly. It died. It was a trend. You put all this money in the coffee shop lobby. Well, it's gone. It was a trend. What are some of the other ones? They put their money in. You, I mean, because you're always chasing a trend in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not a brick-and-mortar building, nor is it a conglomerate of, 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 of or gatherings. The body of Christ is biotic. It is the body of Christ literally. And your body doesn't change with trends. If you notice, your body will stay the same no matter how much you try to trend it into something else. Your bad, bad diets, you know, bad exercise programs. You're talking about people who did all of these heavy whatever things, dropping dead. Why are they dropping dead? Because the body didn't care. 
The body is like, I'm built to do this. And Jesus is the head of the body. So where we, where we have to go in terms of how we're fixing this or what we're going to do, we first have to start with leadership. We start where God starts. He starts with the head. He starts with leadership. And even though he starts with the heart, it's what the heart says to the head. So you were talking, and I just thought this was such a great thing. Uh, Prophet Norma got this book in the mail this week, and I thought it's really wonderful, and it's called Thanks for the Feedback. How the Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well. I said everything, talk about difficult conversations, everything. You know, and it's talking about emotions distort ourselves our sense of the feedback itself. Okay? I thought that was I thought that was really good. Go, go ahead, you're gonna be hitting that a lot. And then and let's talk about here's a question. Here's what you can do to help me change. Okay? One step back to you, me intersections. How I see me, how you see me. Now, I have review systems that really incorporate all of this. I've never read the book, but I will. But all of this, but it's talking about what, why feedback devastates you instead of elevates you. So if, here's one. Feedback can rock our sense of self. And perhaps, let me just see this. Do they attack your character, not just your behavior? Sometimes your character needs to be attacked. The, problem, the issue we have right now is that people are separating the two. The character is the imprint that the behavior reprints. So, no, how about this? You have a duty to mitigate the cost to others. So in other words, and in our program when we teach, and I'm going to go through some of that book. It's really a good book. I teach cost and loss. I was getting too caught up. I was teaching. I was losing focus. Cost and loss. The one thing the church does not equip you to do is self-help. The church is about self-affirmation. It's about Self-desert. You're always giving yourself a treat for what you think you deserve. It's about understanding that you're not perfect and the new birth did not make your soul or body perfect. The church does not equip you to do anything, make yourself better, because it's expedient for it as the spiritual entity on the world that on the uh, in the world that the heaven uses for it to always be in a debilitated capacity, posture. So when we tell you so-and-so, it's le- we put legalistic on feedback. We put l- religion on feedback. We attach religion and legalistic and criticism and witchcraft to assessment. That's how the church has taught you to do this. You know, I mean, you went, you're legalistic if I tell you that you're not in uniform. Can you imagine the officers of, the, of our 
sisters talking about, uh, I'm not wearing this because this is too, I mean, this is just too binding. This is too legalistic. Okay, I need you. If you're going to pull my car over, there's something blue, black, blue, brown, or whatever with some brass better be on you. I'm going to need you to have some brass, okay? Because that's uniform. Because it's more, it's not about a style statement. It's about what the standards and the structure as well as the framework of the organization needs to fulfill its mission and to have an image that says it's on point with the mission. We're legalistic if we tell you you got to be on time as a leader. Let me tell you something. I'm, I, I don't. We do reviews. Now, I have probably one of the most comprehensive, extensive, automated service reviews you'll ever see. Because it does everything. It, it gives you scores, takes your questions, it tells you what your questions mean, gives you your score range, has a sliding scale, and then comes with reviewer recommendation. So you get to see what your answers said about you. So you do it, and then we do it. And we do it. My review is not based on what you think leadership ought to be. My review is based on what my organization needs in a leader. So, you know, if you're independent, you probably should be independent. (laughs) Why am I saying that? Because the pendulum is swinging back. You all are sick of what's happened to you. I got an article, I read an article yesterday um, from the Barna Research people talking about folks that pastoral credibility is in trouble, that people don't find pastors credible. Well, I would think that if we look at what the church is, has done, how it's joined forces with the world, how it's backing darkness, how it's upholding libertinism, I would think that people would have a problem with it. That's not enough. I mean, if that was just the problem, we'd be okay. But then add to that the people who've never heard of a pastor now getting a misrepresentation. So when they get saved and come to church, they want that wicked pastor. They want the wicked church. By the way, wicked is related to witchcraft, in case you didn't know it. Do your homework. So they want that witchy church, that witchy pastor, that occultic demon. So, so we have two problems. We have the present church wanting to be like the world, which to me, if you want to be like the world, why go to church? Go to the bar, go to the mall, go to the golf course, go to the Roman bath, go someplace. You want to be baptized, go ahead and get baptized in that. But see, we don't make differences because in order to, to, to fracture this thing and split the church the way it's become, we had to come against its doctrines in, in, in order to come against its holiness. So in order to shatter holiness, we had to fracture the wholeness of the church. And every time God picks us up and we get up and we start running again, devils, they start all over. They're all around you sniping. You got your family sniping. You got your relatives there. You got your job, your neighbors, your club, your alumni, everybody is telling you how bad the church is. And so what do you do? You pick up the mantra. Christian church is bad. Devil junk is good. I prefer devil junk. I want to take my clothes off. 
I don't want to be religiously holy. I don't want to be legalistically modest. I want profanity, not sanctity. I want, see, you, you bought in. And the issue that Satan knows is that ignorant or not, God's going to judge you. Jesus gave a parable that said the, the servant that did really, really good, God rewarded the one who didn't, God striped, and the one who, who could, didn't know any better still got striped because his belt is built in the system. So anyway, before I get into it, because we're going to have class, get your notebook, get your whatever, we're going to have class. I'm excited. Did you talk about these yet? Okay, I'm glad. She waited for me. Doing a mic drill. Half of why you can't answer what's right or wrong is because your identity is off. I like that we start with identity. And so we have these drills. Thank God for Prophet Angela, who says she's the drill sergeant, and she drills. I just love it. So identity, your key to destiny. And so what we're going to do is have her do a lovely commercial with her drills so that it's going to play uh, all the time. They should tell you how to get the drills online because they are amazing. And it's, what, 30 days, 31 days? And then in the back, we got the Warriors Creed, where this guy is actually de- decreeing and declaring. So until you get it right, let him say it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about that. So I've been busy today. Get this book. Thanks for the feedback. It will be in my leadership training program all of my leaders and ministers will do it. And you know why? Because you, you can't say anything to the typical Christian without them becoming defensive. That's right, right, that's right. You can tell again defensive, the voice goes up. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's not it. Well, we were just like this. Now, why are we, why are we there? Okay? And then, and then the eyes get sharp. All of a sudden, they look like pins, you know, just staring at you. And then they get tense and defensive. That means... And if you can't take feedback, you cannot qualify for excellence. Because feedback is a major excellence qualification, major professional attainment, achievement qualifications. So we will be using this book um, in, my, uh, in our university and, and everything else we got going on. I'm just thrilled about that. That's good. Thanks for the feedback. And I just thank God for it because... I'm good at feedback. Yeah. I really am. The issue with the church is, but you ever notice when you, we, you know, secularly they call it feedback. In the church it's rebuke. Ooh. You rebuked me. No, I nurtured you. I assessed you. I developed you. I even corrected you. I didn't rebuke you. People don't come back from rebuke. Look it up. Jesus rebuked those devils and told them to get out. He didn't nurture. He didn't assess. He didn't correct. He didn't suggest. He didn't recommend. He rebuked them. Stop using that phrase. Stop that. Because by the time you get to rebuke, we should have gone through the whole list of developmental and instructional as well as assessment terminology. You rebuke. Now, I'm not rebuking. This is not a prophetic moment. This is a professional moment. This is a developmental moment. This is a nurturing moment. Take that out of your textbooks. Now, I wrote a book. Well, I wrote a couple. But this one is what we use for all of our leadership. It is on the market. It's on the market, right, Chief? Okay. It's on the market. Now that you are a leader, 
It is a wonderful book, and if you look, when you get it, it's, I'm excited about it. We have, of course, lists and action items, and we call it the Thinker's Lab. We have, because see, I'm, I'm having a Thinker's Lab. We have activities. Find uh, some activities in the back. We have activities where you can work through it. Now that you are a leader, now why did I name it that? Um, I named it now that you are a leader. Wait a minute, I think I lost my page. Oh, there we go. I named it now that you are a leader because most times the first thing a newly appointed leader will say so everybody feels good about their promotion and don't, don't feel threatened by it, what do they say? Leadership is not going to change me. Leadership won't change me. Don't worry. I'll be what I always was. Don't worry. I won't be any different. You tell your family. Nothing will change. You tell your spouse. Nothing will change. You tell all of your friends and your hangout pals. Nothing will change. And then when things change because of the, the complex and the context of your position, then they tell you you got stuck up. Look at you. You, look, you got all stuck up. You're too good for us. You too good. Uh-uh. You should tell them in the beginning, I'm going to change. I have a section in here on how to prepare your family for your leadership promotion. <laughs> Don't tell your children it's going to stay the same because they're going to be upset. When, when people are running for public office, they and the, the orientation includes their family. You know, if, you're, if you are a, a pastor or a leader and you're preparing to elevate someone and promote someone or appoint them to a position, you need to include the family because they are the first ones to feel the brunt of it. Honey, we're going to do this. Now, should a, should a, a, a spouse tell a person not to serve God? I think that's a risky proposition, and you will court God's reaction. I thought I'd be nice about it. <laughs> Because God says the gifts and callings are without repentance are irrevocable. means God can't. I was wondering, why did he say irrevocable? Come on, God. See, without repentance means, okay, he doesn't regret it. He won't call it back. He won't deny it. But irrevocable, which is one of the synonyms, and it means he, won't, he can't revoke the call on your life because the call on your life is biotic and genetic. So a singer doesn't sing because we give them a title. Right. A dancer doesn't dance because we give them a title. We give them a title because it's what they do and because it's what they are. So when he said that, so if your spouse decides to say, well, I'm sorry, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not signing up for it. I want you to understand that you are putting your family in judgment. You're going to, because God has to prove whether or not you're right or he's right. So your children are going to bear the brunt of it. The favor will leave your house. And in the beginning, you won't even recognize it. It's, it'll take about three or four years before you realize, wait a minute, God is no longer with us like he was. Why did my son get arrested? Why did my daughter get this? Think about David. God, David took God off and all hell broke loose in his family and never returned. And then his crazy wife, Michael, was upset because David is having a celebratory moment with the Lord, and she goes and she chides him on him, obviously, caring more for God than her, if you read into it, and said, God closed her womb. He closed her womb. See, some of y'all are barren because you got in God's business. 
Because God wants children as an inheritance to keep what he had you do and what you did for him successfully going into future generations. And if you're going to stop that, God is like, but I don't need it, you know. We need to know our God. Those who know their God will be strong and do great exploits. So here we are. Let's look at where we're going. We're going somewhere. I welcomed you, so you pretty much got that out the way. The leader mind. I want you to look at this. Look at this and ask yourself, is this your mind for the position you want God to put you in? Do you have, are you about learning and leading instead of leaning and learning as you go? Do, does the idea of skills excite you or intimidate you because it's going to impress upon you and weigh upon you in ways you don't understand or want? <clears throat> if you look at the cogs, are you a solution-driven person or are you a problem-stagnant person? You know, you, I know a leader by how much problems stagnate them. It freezes them. They don't think solution. They're like the animal caught in the a trap or in the scope of a of a hunter's rifle or a predator's stalking. They just freeze. They can't think of anything else to do. They just freeze. Their brain stops. They can't come up with ideas. They can't come up with anything. I'm giving you this because as, as um, people who are going to have to restock God's leadership staff, I would like you to do so armed and equipped. So we've done so much about equipping people, we forgot to arm them for the, for the pushback and the kickback. <clears throat> Specialist skills. Do you do you think that? I just want you all to see it. Okay, average and novice skill. What's the where where are you on the dial? And can you tell the difference? Do you know what which one is what? We talked about that. We already talked about. Are you a developer? Are you a change manager? Do you manage processes? In other words, what are your cogs doing? The word cogs is in the word cognizance. So what are your mental cogs doing? What are your social and your emotional cogs doing? You need to figure that out. How about best practices training? How, how many of you all had a leadership program that didn't even include, didn't even mention best practices? Like there are some practices that are better than others. The reason people are having issues with the church, the pastors are having a, 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 a credibility crisis is because their practices failed. They began to practice their religion. And then they began to practice their irreligion. And then they began to practice their sacrilege. See, all of that, all of that should have had flags that warned them when they were tilting this way or that. There should be alerts. In our systems that we have here, we have alerts. I have alert statements. I have alert um, examples. So you need to understand how do you want your, lead, your leaders to practice their leadership in your organization. And then we have rules and regulations. Oh, my. Isn't that the legalistic piece? That's why so many saints are noncompliant, because you don't like rules and regulations because your theology told you they are not God. Now, God has throughout the, the New Testament, Old Testament and New, all of the rules and regulations because rules keep you from going too far left too far right. As a matter of fact, Satan loves to tell you that the rules exist to be broken. Yeah, and when you break them, God breaks you. You see how that works? 
So breaking gets breaking. Because if you notice, here we are now, a broken church. We flaunted the rules. We snubbed them because they're legalistic. If I don't do anything else in my lifetime, I'm going to kill that devil called legalistic, and I'm going to kill that devil that calls that's called religious. You know why? Because he's a con artist. Conned you because he came from God. See, devils did not originate on earth. Once you get it in your mind, the devils did not originate on earth. Demons did. Devils did. She said, I'm writing my notes. See, devils were in heaven according to first um, according to Revelation twelve. When they fused with humans, they got demons. So if devils didn't originate on earth and they in fact originated in heaven, they know how to tick God off. They know how to provoke his judgment, how to distort his laws and his rules and regulations to their benefit. They know the things that will cause God to instinctually and reflectively release his judgment or chastening. They know that. They can no longer obey God. They know it very well because they've become that antithesis. They are living beings, and they are living antithetic beings that exist to antagonize the Almighty so that they can sever you from him and thus inherit you in their kingdom and in their realm. See, that's spiritual warfare talk. I don't know what that all, all the other stuff was. So then they go and they reproduce with the daughters of men and they beget demons because they're not full devils. And they're not full humans. They get demons. And so when you think about it, you know, it's their fusion with humanity. They, are, they know very well how to set up a, a legal system, a court system, a justice system that will dem- demolish, devastate a nation, a people, a planet. They know very well how to do that. And they don't just know it. They are it. They cannot please God. They, that, that, that door is forever shut on them. So when you decide that you want to have these stupid debates about light and darkness and God and devil and righteousness and all of that, understand that you are talking on the demonic level. <laughs> because the... <laughs> Y'all all right, social media? Y'all, y'all rolling with me? <laughs> so I want you to hear this so that you can pick up the right part of the debate and that you can persuade people of God's righteousness with, with more than my heart is burning, my soul is burning up, my leaper is leaper, my spirit is up. Okay. You can't use all of that because that's your personal assessment. And that is your organic assessment. But now, if we're talking about having a public assessment, then you're going to have to understand what the fight is. You have been fighting God because Satan has told you God is the devil. 
and you've been fighting God because he won't let you have any fun, like your pubescent teenagers and your childish adolescents. You're fighting God. I don't see why we can't. My question is I don't see why you want to because you didn't inherit it from God, so why, why do we want to? See, those are the kind of discussions we're going to have going forward as God separates the wheat from the chaff. And then lastly, just, just the whole idea of leadership. Now, what are we doing here? Well, you're going to get an opportunity to configure your soul to lead and succeed. So we have, we have not produced this book because I know y'all. Y'all are going to be asking me this. We're going to, we will have one like it, but if you notice, Soul of Success Factbook, Conforming Me. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, it says, Under Construction, Coming Soon. Next. We are fond of saying that, um, you know, your gift will make room for you and bring you before great people. You understand that your gift can't bring you before people uh, can't do any more than bring you before people until it becomes expertise, until it becomes competence, capability. If you're just there singing because you, you like how you sound in the shower and somebody big has vouched for you and then thus gave you that audience, you keeping that or winning that position, whole other thing, whole other thing. So Jeremiah 10.23 I thought you'd like to see this guy. You know, he's got a lot going on in his chest. Look at that. He's got a lot. He's got some soul searching. He's got leadership issues. He's got to figure out the puzzle of leadership. And then he's got the whole world as his aspiration. I just thought you'd appreciate that. But here, the passage in Jeremiah 10.23 says, Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his state. All of these things that make you think is your idea and you made up your mind and nobody can tell you what to do and, okay, is it for nurture or nature and all of those kind of idiotic things that the philosophers of the world like to busy themselves with, that means nothing to the Almighty. I'm the maker. It's like, it's like the computer people telling you they don't have a clue about that computer. I don't know what it's going to do. I'm just, we just, we're, we're churning out millions and billions of them, but I have no idea how it's going to turn out. As a matter of fact, you turn it on, it just may make up its mind to do something else. But lately, mm-hmm. lately, amen. However, when you're the maker, you have to know what everything is going to do. How else will you be able to fix it, correct it, as it's said here, or direct it? Ecclesiastes 2.13, then I saw that wisdom excels folly as far as light excels darkness. So wisdom excels stupidity, idiocy, foolishness, the way light excels darkness. And unless you want to go to sleep, you're pretty much going to say light is the better choice. Let us wake up for six months with no sun. All you have is darkness. That's going to be a difficult thing. Okay, Proverbs, one of my favorite ones, uh, seest thou a man diligent in his business, he shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. Some of you all are trying to work for your top leader, and you've not proven yourself with the other leaders, the, the supervisor, the overseer, the, the, the uh, what do you call it, the team leaders. 
You know, I'm sorry. I'm just too big for a team leader. But I'm sorry. I should be working with Dr. Price. No, you can't. You can survive me. Oh, that's all right. I'm going to forgive you for that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do a little bell. You can't survive your top leaders. They didn't get to the top dreaming, hoping, wishing, etc. I don't care how much you think that they got there by nepotism, that they got there by cronyism. The fact of the matter is they had to be brought to the attention and appreciation of those that put them in position, that, that they had to gain some skills and garner them. But God says line upon line and precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, and he said despise not the day of small beginnings. Most, most of these people who broke away from your churches, they don't know eternal, eternity's protocols. Yeah, but they ended up with a lot of people short-lived. Short-lived. Life is very funny. You're going to pay life back in the front or in the back, but you're going to pay life back. There's a front load or a back load, but you're going to pay life back because God has got to have what he needs to use to go forward to the next generation. So you can look at all of these people right now, and I'll tell you within 10 years, 12 years, they're going to be whatever happened to. Trust me on this word. All of these kids running around with nothing in their head and everything in their, in their charisma, you won't see them. Because God has changed. Now, what does it mean for God to change? I mean, we have to know that. Don't we have to know it? Well, Saul was elected, was appointed, inaugurated. We had a whole ceremony for him, everything. And the first thing the man did was go hide among the stuff because he knew it wasn't in him. And it never did breed in him. What Saul bred was what Saul was. So Saul was, but meanwhile, while Saul was teaching the people what bad leadership and childish leadership and selfish leadership looks like, David, on the other hand, was going through hell. He was on the run, had a national price on his head. He, he, he had to work with, the, with the, the enemy. He had to pretend just to stay alive. But all along, he's gathering talents. He's ga- gathering experience. He's gathering expertise. He now knows how to assemble an army. He now knows how to take care of 600 men who have wives and children. We only, you know, the Bible acts like God has a problem with women. No, the, the interpreters did. God does not have a problem with his handiwork. God thinks the gnat is useful. I don't know why, but one day we'll talk about why do you think a gnat is useful, okay? But I'm sure it's the economy, ecology somewhere. So he has 600 men with women and children, it is conceivable he was responsible for up to 2,500 lives. He had to keep them together. They had to make camp, break camp when he was on the run. Meanwhile, he's learning how to make soldiers, how to make warriors. He had to turn around and develop leaders. He had to develop military leaders and civil leaders and political and judicial leaders. He's getting all of this while he's on the run. So when he takes the throne, there is no time lag between his ascension and his ability to, keep, to change that nation and to take over. He rides with his mighty men, David's mighty men. They stayed with him all his days. They are the ones that started this thing with him when he was nothing. Now, Saul, if you want to know the Saul model, the Saul model are, literally is these kids today. They're the Saul model. They're, they're just giving, everything's dropped in their life. 
some of them are offspring or, or the children of other leaders who ran away and hated church, and now they have a church. That's the Saul model. Study Saul's model. You're going to see these young folk today. Always has to give way to David, even though it took a while. It took quite a while. But eventually, Saul dies. He dies, and, and, and it's interesting. He dies. His, his reign ends right when the people are sick of him. The people are sick of Saul. He, is, he has an unjust dra- draft system. Their children are being drafted just because they're there. He is, he's taking their property. He's owning everything. He's becoming government overreach. He's also, you know, mandating foolishness things. They're sick of him. So trust me, when he died, they were pretty glad. Now, he, of course, everybody has a little constituency that said, well, I started with you, and I'll be faithful with you to the end. But the people were sick of Saul, so sick of Saul that when his son took over, they were like, oh, no, Mm-mm. no, 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 we're not having any more of this. And they went and got David. Judah was the first one. Judah said, okay, y'all could be led by that idiot all day long. We're going over here with David because we've been watching him. And we know that David can bring us back, and David can lead us where we need to go. So David was diligent. From the beginning, the one thing Scripture says about David is that he was diligent, he was conscientious, he was brave, he was, bo- he was bold, but he was also fair, and he was just. That's something they hadn't had for decades with Saul. So it says, he will not stand before mean men. Mean down there means empty, poor, insignificant people. When you're, when you're at the top, you don't want the bottom to be that close to you. Because those are the people that can't keep secrets, telling all your business. Anybody know what I'm trying to say? All right? Dropping all kinds of balls, giving all your private business out, no discretion. We're going to talk about that. All of that. So you, you want people who have been tried and who have been able to empty themselves of all of the flaws that would bring down an organization and strengthen themselves for everything that will elevate it. Are you all hearing me? Are you hearing me out there? I need you to recognize how to choose because what you're assessed is not what's going to be successful. We assess according to the anointing. We don't know how you do that. Do you just say A is worth this, N is worth that, O is worth this, I is worth that, and so do you assign a, a, a numerical value to every letter? Because you have to have something firm, solid, and tangible to measure, and it's got to be the same. So how do you measure the anointing? You, and if you measure it by people's response, you're going to be misled a lot because people change like the wind. So we, we measure it by love, another emotional sentiment. We may measure it by the favor of God on them. Okay, how do I measure that? Where's the metric for it? Where's the criteria or the standard? See, we have to start thinking like leaders in order for you to lead. Otherwise, you're a front runner. All you're doing is out. All you're doing is being out front. There's a difference between a leader and a front runner, and you need to know the difference. Even asking yourself, am I a real leader or am I just a? Because if you're very charismatic, anybody hearing me? If you, then people will follow you because they love your charisma. They love your sense of humor. They love how you make them laugh, how, 
happy they feel when they're around you. They love you because you hand out gifts and tokens. You're a bribing leader. But they don't love you because you can help them get to where they're called to be through what you are ordained to do. So let's look at the leadership domain so you understand. Number one, learning never ends. The fact that you got a degree doesn't end your educational process. You should always be learning. There ought to be a book that you're reading all the time. There ought to be a, a, a subject that you're studying all the time. If you look on the, to the upper left, the, you, you, do you empower people? Are they inspired when they are with you? When they leave your presence, do they, they not because they want to depart, but are they in a hurry to leave so they can go and do what you just inspired them to do? Okay? And, and can you lead change? Because we can mandate change all day long, but leading change takes skill. It's an art form. Because leading change means you must persuade people to agree with what you say should be and to commit themselves to making it so. And then shared vision. You have a vision for your life. I have a vision for my life. I do not ignore my members' vision. I don't ignore my staff's vision. It's just that we happen to be very compatible so they can find a piece of their calling in my overall vision. This is not the whole vision. You got to just do the vision of the house. No, no, no. In order for you to do the vision of the house, I have to see you as a provision. So I have to know God provided you for what I'm doing. Because if he did, then he also enabled you. He empowered you. He fired you. He equipped you. He endowed you. Endued. You understand? So doing the vision of the house means you're not a robot. I don't want robots. I don't like robots, and I don't like clones. <laughs> because a clone is going to only give you half of what it is. It's imitated. And a robot is going to act without thinking. Both are detrimental to a good leadership structure. Does this help you? And then, you, uh, uh, you know, have you learned? Do you have experience? Do you operate on knowledge? Are you supportive? And you have to see this in your people. You have to make people unafraid to support you, unafraid to serve you. Right now, people are afraid because they're burnt out by the self-serving leaders who wanted them to just do my vision. My vision is useless without my provision. The people who come, their talents are important, and it's wonderful because they offload my brain with their innovation and their ingenuity. They offload my time with their ability and their diligence. They offload my responsibilities with their initiatives, with their oversight. You see, I understand that. So, which is why we have assessments, so I can know where to put you. I don't want to put you someplace where you will fail. Quality leaders will never overplace you. They won't put you where, they know, where you will fail. Now, they may do it because they don't know that this is going to cause you to fail, and they should. If you're going to start placing people, you need to know what works and what doesn't, what wins, what loses, what rises, and what falls. So I'm not going to put you someplace where you're going to fail. Now, I may put you there for training if I see the potential, but we're not going to set you up for failure. I need the church to stop setting people up for failure because that's what we're doing. 
well, he just had, he was anointed, but she was available. No, no, no. That's not going to work. And in the day where you can get some virtual help, you don't have to take a whole lot of inept availables. You can just get you some virtual help. Exploring your leadership consciousness. And leadership is a consciousness. It is a consciousness based on sentiment, beliefs, values, aspiration, inspiration, and outcomes. So what does your psyche think leadership is? What does your soul think leadership is? If you look at it on, on to the left, you got the guy with his pen. He's pinning um, standards, policies, rules, regulations. How many of you, what happened? How many of you leaders, how many of you leaders actually think like this? Or how many of you say, well, we don't do rules. Well, you'll do my rules, but we're not going to call it rules. First of all, all of the people that tell you that rules should be broken or they hard out lying, that is a, literally, that is a deceptive servant's lie. Because what they mean is you're going to do those rules, you do these rules. Because life has rules. Anything that's going to keep something going forward, something on the straight and narrow, is a rule. So if the rule is we wear jeans every day, that you will consider, be considered a rule breaker if you come with a suit and tie. That's a rule. Now, your personal rule is that I do suit and tie. But the social rule is that we don't do that. Dressing down is the social norm. So that is the unspoken rule. If the rule, if the rule is that you know, everybody eats at 12 and you're like, yeah, but see, 12 o'clock, I'm a little bit upset, blah, 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 you have to get an exemption. From the rule. So do you, does your training teach rules and respect for them? The Bible calls rules in Galatians canon. Now, on the other side, we got, we've got standards, compliance, regulations, and rules. But see, on the other side, we've got a, a check, to me, check it out. So we have analysis and audit and assessment, um, quality, plan, results. These are the things that you should be thinking about as a leader if you want your organization to go forward and to be tight enough to withstand all that it will face, the resistance, opposition, disfavor, frustration, assault, attack. Those are normal. They're built into the human experience. They're actually built into the ecology of creation, this creation in particular. So you should not have a training that makes your people think that, First of all, if they mess up, they're over. Failure can give you the best wisdom ever. Nothing gives you better wisdom than failure because you have to sit back and examine it. I teach my people all types of your failures so you can find out what you did very good and what you, did, what you could have done differently and how to tweak it because sometimes it doesn't require an overhaul. Sometimes it just requires a small adjustment to make something work. So let's take time to explore your leadership consciousness. Listen, I need you all to give me feedback also on this on social media. I'd love to know how this is doing. This is part of my overall leadership class for my training, the Omni Executive Services, I Train Leaders. So I'm just giving you some excerpts from it. You're not going to get the juice. I know you probably feel like you're getting all of the juice, the syrup, and the broth. You're not. You're getting the fumes. The aroma. 
Okay. Now look at this one, leadership. You see training, and then you see, look at the, on the puzzle pieces. What is that telling you? That's analytical. That is conceptual. So everybody has a piece of the puzzle. You see, that is what it's saying. This whole idea that, you know, the leader is it. I'm the top person. Nobody has it but me. Are you kidding? If, if I'm the only one have it, has it and I'm not disseminating it, then I'm just a bloated ego. I'm, I'm just all in love with myself, a bloated narcissist. I'm not. I want to see what part of me is in every person God sends and assigns to me. And believe me, they all have a part of it. Now, I can do that, and I can see that, and when I tell you how, you all are going to agree. I gave birth to three daughters. They are so similar, it's not funny. And they are so different, you cannot believe it. But yet, I see portions of me in all of them. And that portion of me is not just for their, uh, their personality. It's also for their purpose. So my job when I receive you is to see your, my purpose portion in what you bring. Do you all understand that? Yes. I have to see that. So if I get somebody that keeps going along the other way, you keep going up, you keep no matter what, it's going to up, up, then I know I have no purpose portion in you. And you have no purpose portion in my vision. Because it's not talking to you, and you're not responding to what I'm talking. See, that was worth the whole broadcast, wasn't it? So every time you sit down, they're talking about their dream, and they're talking about their experience, and they're talking about how their life works and what God has said to them and what they're called to do. Well, that's fine. Go get your own. Go do your, your, your yours on your time and your dime. Because... When we sit down, now, if we're having dinner and we're just sharing testimonies, that's one thing. But if we're talking about making things happen from what you bring, because, see, you have a part of this reward. You brought it because you're part of the reward. There's a reward for you. And I need to know you're going to war for your reward. As I say often to my staff, in the middle of the word reward is the word war. So I need to know if you're going to war for your ward. Because when you look at the parable of the talents and you look at the parable of the, the ten minor, they're about rewards. They're about working for a reward, fighting for a reward, but also about discovering and acknowledging how you can win or what you bring to the battle or the conflict to win. You should know yourself. You, shouldn't, you should not be serving a leader who doesn't know you or cannot understand you. You know, in my book, uh, Divine Order, and also in Eternity's Generals in the back, it's like, know what your people bring. You know why? Because people serve you better when they think you know them, when they think you understand them, when you can say you understand how they arrive at this or how they approach that, how they do this and how they do that. Leadership is, a, see, front running is just a matter of being there for the show. That's a public spectacle. Leadership, that is not. Leadership is an all-engrossing, all-encompassing function that keeps, you, keeps your mind more on others than even almost yourself. 
So I need you to recognize that. So when I sit down, as a matter of fact, people are brand new. And when I sit down with them because they figure she, uh, she doesn't see us, you know, I go back and forth. First of all, I tell my leaders, I tell Chief, I tell Pastor Ashley, you know, so-and-so is this. This is what they pray. This is the, I haven't seen their assessment. This is what they say. This is how they're going to do it. This is what God does. They've lived this kind of life. And I can pretty much run that down. So when I sit down with them, I say, this is what you bring to this organization. This is where it plugs in. See, we don't like to talk plug in because if it's the leader's vision and the vision of the house, then you are just going to plug in and it's going to be a one-way stream. That is not how this works in God's realm. So if you look at the screen, you can see compatibility, capacity, and capability inventory. Now, there is a long inventory that follows this. You're not going to get that today. But if we stay on this journey, and I say if because as long as God says so, because I wake up and he'll change everything. Okay, but if you look at this, these are the things that you should have. These should be innate to your leadership consciousness, criteria, not just criticism, criteria. You can't, as a matter of fact, in order to criticize somebody, you, if, you have to have some sort of criteria in mind, whether it's formal or informal, whether it's subjective or objective and also whether it's subconscious or conscious. But we have criteria. Well, criteria gives hardness, firmness, solidarity to that anointing. And then metrics. What, what's the measurement? Span? You know, God has a wonderful statement in the book of uh, Ephesians where he says, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, full range to know the love of God. So God expects us to know how high his love is, how deep it goes, and how wide it is. So metric is there. But I love it when people say, well, God doesn't do that. Yes, he does. We've got 10 commandments. We've got 12 tribes. We've got seven days. We've got 12 apostles. I don't know. I think he's pretty, pretty, he, he told, let me tell you, God is so metrical. He says to Job, can you measure the snowflake? I'm done with Jesus. <laughs> Lord, by the time I get the snow plate on the scale, it's a drop of water. How do you measure the snowflake? He is very much, the weights and measures are big in God's mind. As a matter of fact, he talked about an unjust measure. He talked about plumb lines. We, we preach plumb line and don't realize that it's a metric. It's a weight and it's a metric. God is about metrics and only because he needs to know. I, I said to you before, we need 12 apostles. 11 didn't cut it because that meant one tribe would not have a fulfillment of Moses' law in Jesus Christ. When you read the book of Revelation, the tribe of Dan is gone. Just for those of you who say God won't wipe you out. Dan is not listed. And it's, but he didn't leave it open. He said, but instead he put the half tribe of Manasseh. So God is hot on that. Duty. Duty is a very interesting thing. You should just really, your leadership should have an exhaustive discussion and training of duty, not just academically, but also practically and executively. Accountability. Here's where most people in church leadership fail. 
You cannot tell me what to do. I, I, I can't be there. I'm sorry. I can't be there. I've got something to do. I'm sorry, but I've been doing it. You took the position. You do it all. Or you do not. And I'm okay with either way you go. Because you're there to fill a, remember, Matthias, remember the 12th apostle. And why was he chosen? Because the, the criteria was, Lord, let us know who of all of those who have come in and come out with us when the Lord Jesus walked among us. Matthias was never absent. He was obviously evident because they had him in another name. But his number one thing was that he was accountable. He was always there. He was always helpful. He was always brought to their attention. Jesus chose him. The lot fell to him. But there was a criteria, and the criteria was accountability. So when people start telling me, well, you know, I can't, and, well, you know, I can't, I don't care. I just don't argue. Do I argue? I just tell them, eliminate them. Put them in the back of the line. Why? Because I should not have to fumble in my calling and my destiny or what I'm supposed to do for this organization because you don't want to be accountable. I like the word accountable because in the middle of it is count. That means somewhere somebody's counting how many times you're here and how many times you're not. That count matters. Accountability, which is because you can't be reliable if you're absent. You can't be credible if you're not there. You can't be respectable, dependable, trustworthy if you're gone. You see how important accountability is? So when people say that, I don't argue with them. You know, Sister So-and-so says she can't make it. I, she can't. Why? Because my organization shouldn't suffer gaps because you can't rise to your point and you can't fulfill your duty. And we, when you're absent, we suffer gaps. Right now, all of these pre- preachers are all happy that they can serve, they can preach online. They're not serving you because serving means touching, contact. They're not serving you. They're sermonizing you. And you're all excited because you don't have to go sit in church, sit among the saints, but until your body breaks down, they can't lay hands on you. And don't believe that lie about we can put our hands on the screen and you're going to get healed. That is not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And you know why? Because God does that for the shut in, not for the opt out. So your kids are going to get in trouble. You're going to have a whole lot. I tell my, my sheep all the time, and, that, and I've been saying it a lot lately, I say, you all need to touch, connect, because you all have testimonies that you can share, that you can swap to help each other. You can pray for each other. You can, okay, because see, when the pastor's sermon is over, it's over. You don't get any fellowship. You don't get any communion. You don't get anything but another sermon from somebody else you like. And, and think about it. You got the sermon going and you're doing the dishes, making a bed, you know, probably watching television. Your kids got rap music in the background. That's not Jesus. Fidelity. How faithful are you? How loyal are you? How much can you be trusted to not have a conflict of interest and to have your position's best interest at the forefront of your mind? Expression, how do you show up? 
expression includes demeanor, conversation. Some of you all, you show up all tired, tattered, raggedy. Your clothes don't fit. Your shoes are not right. Hair left. Arms right. Something out of place. Image. So, see, because nonverbals matter, too. How do you behave when you're talking? How do you behave when you're interacting with others? Are you one of those people that's constantly snapping and growling at people? See, we can't have that. And then perspective. Perspective is quite important because it speaks to your view, your viewpoint and your standpoint on your position, on the organization, on its requirements, etc. Now, something else leaders ought to be able to do, and that is think critically. I've given you a lot of information to help you think critically. That's important. Think critically. Critical comes from criteria. Think criti- critically means that there is a criteria that is motivating your assessments, your observations, evaluations, appraisals, and the like. So when we think about critical race theory, critical race theory has a criteria. We have to understand what that criteria is. And then we have to assess that criteria according to our own critical thinking. So what does it look like? Well, in this class, these will be our takeaways. Can you see? Clearer thinking, instinct versus intellect, and then practice tips. The number two, instinct versus intellect. There are a lot of people who are intelligent and have no instincts. Dense as a doorknob. Frustrating, whatever. Interesting. So, but yet quality education, quality instruction, and confirmation, conformation, not formation, conformation will cause, will bridge the gap between instinct and intellect. So you'll not just be intelligent in it. That intelligence will have assimilated itself throughout your being so that it becomes instinct. That is how you can say, man, I don't know how I remember that. I don't know where that came from. I don't remember learning that. You did. You did, but it's so fused with your overall makeup that it actually began to work as part of your autonomic system, your instincts. Your soul has its own autonomic system, meaning it just just works. So what I look for when I'm doing training is I appreciate the intellect, but I I have a, a bunch of activities that also let me know if it's beginning to distill itself as part of your instincts. So, you know, when you look at the training of our professionals today, they may know that manual, but over time that manual fades into their overall consciousness, cognizance, and it becomes instinct. So they immediately know how to go into action or how not to. Some of you all, you bring your basic instincts to your training and your service. You bring, you bring your, well, this is just me. That's fine. Nobody wants you like that. We don't want you as an independent. We want you as part of the whole. You're a cog in the will. Of the, we all are. We're cog in God's will. Many of you, like prophets are, one, to me, when I'm trained, that's one group who have to work hard on their instinct because they want to do everything by instinct, everything by reflex, knee-jerk reactions, overkill, overkill, overkill until they learn how to let that intelligence balance it. For example, if you're prophesying to somebody and you're screaming in their face, 
that's not going to work. But your instinct is to say, I want to persuade them that I'm really talking from God, so I'll keep raising my voice. I'll keep escalating my sound. That's your inferiority. So your instinct is for your inferiority instinct is overriding the intelligence. Oh, I want to talk very, very long, so I want to make my prophecies real, real long so that they'll know that I have a good, intense relationship with God. Or I'm going to lay hands on you and knock your head against the wall, push you down, roll you over, leave you for dead. See, all of that is your insecurity instincts working. And we need to transport. Come on. I mean, let's get real. Well, then we have leaders. We have leaders who feel like their instinct is to always bark orders to, or, or, or chide you for being wrong or to make you think that you should be telepathic. So they don't want to give you any, any information. Their instinct is self-preservation, which is in that laziness. I don't want to do the homework. I don't want to think it through. I don't want to write it out. I don't want to give you a memo. I don't want to give you an em- email because... I don't have time, and the reason I don't have time is because I'm too great. Because I'm above you. That's for the little people to do. See, that is your, your, now your instinct is protecting your ego and your arrogance. Because you are too good to see to it that your people are set up to succeed. You're too good. You don't have to write a memo. I don't have to. If I have to tell you, then you ought not to be here. If you can't tell me, I ought not to be here. You're right. You're right. I'm there. I'm with you. Quality leaders want their people to succeed, so they sit down and they plan. And then after they plan, they write it out. That's what God said. Write the vision and make it plain. And we stop at make it plain, but does anybody know what the rest of it says? that those who read it can run with it. Your people can't run with your vision because they can't read it. And they can't see their part in it. And they'll tell you, I write and I leave nothing to chance. I write everything. They, and, and my staff is so stunned to know there's, well, not all of them. A couple of them get it. But there's a document, there's a memo, there's a directive, there's an instruction sheet. There is a protocol for everything I say. So when I tell you you missed it, I'm not going on my, my instincts or my sentiments alone. I'm saying this is what's supposed to be happening. This is what happened. There is a gap. A gap means that there's a breakdown in continuity, in consistency. So it's important for you um, to really know that. So now, here's a way to think about it. We're talking about critical thinking. I told you, when you look at critical theory, critical race theory, stop looking at what they said. That's the end product. You need to find out what their criteria is. And this little, um, that, that, um, that chart I showed you, where is that going? What are they measuring? What are they trying to achieve? Because all of that has outcome. And your critical thinking has in, needs input to produce a specified outcome. Do you, do you all hear me? So something, has, you have a criteria. You may not be calling it that, but a criteria exists for measurements, for standards, for norms, for judgments, for assessments, for, for approval, for verification, for review. See, all of that is in that little word called criteria. And most people, we all use them. Everybody has them, 
But the problem is you've never written them down, so your people don't know what you are assessing them by. So they call it judgment. They call it abuse. They call it rebuke because it's not stated, and they don't know what to do with it. And every organization falls into its own standards and its own norms. So when you look at it, here's a way for you to beef up your critical thinking. Now, listen, when I ask for an offering, y'all better sow because you you understand. And this is not just spiritual wisdom. This is practical wisdom. When I ask for an offering, I want you to dig as deep as I dug to see to it that you have this. All right, so the first thing you want to know is how to detect it. How do I detect what's going on, what I'm ex- observing, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing? And then how to think it. The, the, okay, so how to detect it. Let me finish that. The, the way to recognize what you learn or read. The best method for recalling and processing it. How to relate it. Steps to take to connect for intelligent use. How to apply it, identifying the most relevant situations for use. How to build on it. Ideas for increasing and expanding wisdom. How to sustain it. Methods for not losing or misusing wisdom. And then lastly, how to share it. The most prudent means of passing it on. Now, I have a whole class that goes with this. One slide. But you have the synopsis, short version. In the end, you walk away with something called pragmatic, the practical way. And I like pragmatic because it's the practical way to carry it out. Prag comes from praxis, comes from prasso, which is carrying it out, performing it. Maddox talks about the techniques, the technology, and such. Leaders exist to give people better, not lesser or leaster, better, all right? So these are, this, here, this is not mine, but I thought it was very good, uh, you know, because I'm signed on to a lot of different sites to give me stuff. But you, you, and we, we like to think that our leaders are better than us, that they're greater, tougher, they're stronger, they're bolder, and then as a result, they're higher and they're harder, meaning that they can take a blow, you know, the one thing you don't want is a leader who collapsed after every blow. And a lot of us, you have it. They, but they don't stand to say they collapse. All of, you always hear they're always on vacation. They're always gone somewhere. They're always vacating the position, vacating the responsibility, dodging things. They're always putting the dirt and the heavy weight on their subordinates. We talked about regulations, laws, policies, compliance. If you want your people to behave and to produce the same thing under the same circumstances again and again and again, then you need to have these written out. They need to know what are the regulations. What am I being regulated by? In other words, what should I be doing regularly in a particular or prescribed way? Regulation, what am I to be doing regularly? So if every week you're supposed to pray and then the third week you're not there, you are obviously not regulated. So that's what you're supposed to do. And then the laws, bylaws, all organizations should have some laws. And then what do you do to help people comply? 
So let's look at some of the little uh, leadership. Ask yourself, this is a great one for you to check yourself. You're a leader. Are you coaching? Are you inspiring? Sometimes we like to coach and inspire uh, because we, and the mentor, because motivate, because none of that's technical. But see, a lot of this is non-technical. So we can say, well, I, I'm a, I, except for management. I, well, I inspire people, inspire them to do what? And how would you know if they're uninspired? Okay. I enlighten them. How do you, how can you let them know where they are not susceptible to enlightenment? Empowering, motivating. But these are all soft, soft actions or attributes of leadership. Those are the activities that you do that can't really be measured. Or if you want to measure them, then you have to assign something to them called what? Criteria, benchmarks, metrics. Now, you're going to find a lot of people, a lot of church folk, don't, they don't like metrics, but then let's look at the church today. We're talking about a, a, a literally a credibility crisis. Why? Credibility is not a soft word. Credibility means are you creditable? Are you accreditable? Are you credible? And credibility comes from a creed, a creed that has standards and measurements, credible minister. Well, the people like them. I was reading this article, and everything was about the people deciding what's credible. I was thinking, well, no wonder you guys are sliding off the rails. So here's the question. Are you qualified? And do you know what qualified looks like? First of all, you need to have an appreciation for the generic term called qualified. What does it mean in general? And then after you need to be able to fill all of these things. You see all these things, competence, skill. Look at that. Reputable, knowledgeable. You need to be able to say that. You, in other words, as a leader or servant of Jesus Christ, you need to have these words in your vocabulary, in your attainment vocabulary, in your pursuit of vocabulary, in your performance vocabulary and your achievement vocabulary, it needs to be there. You have to have these words so that people will know how to assess you or at least verify that you are their leader or disprove that you shouldn't be. These are measurables. And, you know, God has a measurable for love. Did you know that? God has a criteria for his love. I know we like to say God is love. But there's a criteria. If you love me, keep my commandments. Why call me Lord, Lord, and what? Do not do what I say. He who loves me keeps my commandments. So that is a criteria. This is not this mushy thing that the church has had. God has never been mushy about his love. He has had love in action as long as we know it. The, 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 uh, Peter, I believe it says, if you say you know him, then you ought to walk like he walked. You ought to Talk like he talks. Those are criteria. Those are criterial measurements. So you're sitting here talking about God is love in the same sentence you're talking about what you did last night, whose throat you're going to cut, how much booze you're going to drink, how much this or that you're going to do. You're sitting there. You don't love this man. You love you. 
and you're making him the scapegoat of your love, your self-love. Everything in order to be effective has got to be measured. That is what we do. And we measure, and not only that, we rank. Level one, level two, level three, level four. We have that in our organization. We have grade one profits. We have grade two profits. We have grade three profits, grade four, and grade five profits. We have grade one, two, three, four, and five apostles. And that doesn't, that your grade doesn't determine whether or not you are um, accepted or whether you're, medium, uh, what do you call it, insignificant or not. It is about where God set you. There's a place where you peak. You peak in your thought life. You peak in your ability. You peak in your understanding. You peak in your, in your um, growth. You peak in your reach, your span, your scope. So we, your grade will show where you peak. And the reason that's important is because we shouldn't put you in something, something that's too little for you or too low for you, and also not in something that's too high, too over your head that guarantees you will fail and, and bomb out of the office. Again, hard data. And the data is not based on our opinions. It's based on the choices you have. We just lay out the questions. Now tell me what your answer is. The day is coming where ministry is going to have more, more, more than the anointing to assert it, to validate it. That day is coming. Why? Because talent draws. You understand a bad singer will have an empty room, a good singer will need a stadium. Talent draws. When the day is coming where anointing is no longer the sole standard or the main standard for measuring a minister's service to God and to their people, we will have our credibility restored because credibility leaves a track. Credibility has a footprint. It has a scale. It has a weight. It has a balance. Credibility, that's a powerful word. Look it up. So let's look at this. Quality steps, excuse me, steps to a quality leadership consciousness. A leadership consciousness has got to precede leadership techniques and approach or methods. You have to feel it. When a person is a genuine leader, their thoughts always go to that place. For example, a person with a leadership consciousness, you'll say, you know, so-and-so is really detrimental to what we're doing, uh, the people are having an issue, we've gotten several reports, blah, blah, blah. Now, a leadership consciousness of, of, let me start with this one, the lack of a leadership consciousness will say, yeah, well, we just need to work with them, we need to make them understand, and, and we, will, we will, you know, obviously give them a chance and understand, indulge them. So the absence of a leadership consciousness is always tolerant and indulgent to the point of detriment. Now, the leadership consciousness, on the other hand, says, yeah, well, we cannot have that with people. We're going to have to come up with a way to kind of, you know, repair this, mitigate this, or remediate it while we still protect the people. So now we are not, why? Because the people are the ones that's going to circulate their opinions about the organization. And that, those negative comments or those negative experiences, they bleed into their testimonies. 
and they began to say, that, and you know people are never going to get it right. So there's always the, the protective part of it. There's always the guardianship part of it, and it's the guardianship of the organization. A lot of times when you, when you look at businesses, and I don't say I agree with it or disagree with this in whole, but in part there's some merit to it. We get mad when a business will turn around and say, well, we're going to lay off, I don't know, 500 people. So the union is going to fight, which they should fight for the people's rights to keep a job. The organization is like, yeah, but if we go bankrupt, whatever the union does won't matter. You see, those are the, the trains of thought we're, we're dealing with. Now, moving on, if you look in there, can you see that? So the, the platform starts with your conduct, moves to your honesty, ethics, and trust. That is what's required. With that, we add knowledge, experience, quality, again, to trust. So these are your platforms. When you see it again, it will be a little clearer. Now, I want to go to this before I get to the other because we don't have a lot of time. In my book, <clears throat> hallelujah, hold on, all right, in my book, on Chapter 6, I have Leadership Appointer Wisdom. As a rule, appointers should know and have gained twice as much experience as those they appoint. So the newbie shouldn't be making the newbie, or the novice should not be appointing the newbie, because you don't have the criteria. You don't understand what they will or will not do. There's been no trial and error. And because you don't have criteria and you don't have other indicators that this is the right person for the position, you're just running on impulse. See, because a lot of times we call instinct impulse. They're very different. So you're impulsively doing it. Okay, to continue. Also, they should forego installing quiescing to novices' insistence on sidestepping processes that set them in position and equip them, uh, excuse me, equipped and qualified, I'm sorry, forgive me, equipped and qualified them. It is foolhardy not to do so because when the unprepared falter, those they were to lead question why their incoming leader was ever appointed over them. Should this become a practice, followers will begin to distrust the judgment of appointers that constantly put the untried in power to their disadvantage. All of these factors are forcing change on us whether we want or are ready for it. Mistrust bred by the unaccountable and resentment over hasty appointments and ordinations reveals serious flaws in old church traditions, particularly independent churches. To these, add for the right reasons. Yet there is one more ingredient putting today's and tomorrow's leaders in and out of the church in their right places the right way. All of these speak to ministerial licensing and ordination and the practices used to accomplish them. Now, I want to stop there and say, how many of you have seen you can get an ordination paper on the Internet, you can get license? Do you know you can't get a law credential? You can't get a medical credential. You can't get a doctoral or anything like that. But you can do this with God's leadership, and you have people actually saying, well, a credential is a credential. I need a transcript with your credential. I need a vitae with your credential. 
I need a resume with your credential. And then I want letters of reference, how your credentials affected positively or negatively anyone else. So when they come and bring me paper, I want to know, and then we, we want to check that organization. If it's one that's already fallen, I have a problem. Dot, dot, dot. God's leadership, proving, pruning, and appointment methods. Scripture records and narrates God's methods of leadership appointment to guide us, uh, to guide us on how he does it. His scriptures show how he elevates and appoints people to his leadership stratum. He does so by first putting the candidate through rigorous trial. Yeah, amen. Hallelujah. Okay. Once they are passed, then comes promotion. Proverbs says in 1533 and 1812, before honor comes humility. That is to say, instruction and wisdom must precede promotion to remove destructive and counterproductive attitudes born, born of haughtiness. These must be dissolved before appointing leaders to their posts. The, the apostle Peter adds to the mix fiery trials, which are the test God's people. He phrases it as if these trials are commonplace and to be anticipated by those seeking promotion in God. Jesus discloses that his future leaders must successfully come through Satan's wheat-like sifting to confirm their eligibility and power to overcome and overrule him. These are but a few of God's ways of pruning and readying a leader for his service. Now, the fact that you are in an organization who wants you to read 10 books, listen to five tapes, watch 12 television programs, Christian programs, and then go out and preach 16 sermons, you're going to fail. And you're going to fail because their system is flawed. Sending in for flawed means fail. No fail states, no safeguards, no measurements, no way of helping you if you're wrong. Just do it. If you're in a just do it and you got it or, um, leadership program, you're going to fail. So moving on. So when I was asked to, to give a speech on how I would do in my position than when I was elected, I gave this particular speech. If you can see it, it, it we have emotions and logic. We have personal uh, and uh, political and all of those things. But these are the things that I came up with. The one thing you want to do as a leader is learn how to, is to listen and learn. Engage and educate. Have something for your people to do and cause what they do to educate them as, as well as employ them. Advise and actionize. Tell and help them become what they have just been import, appointed to do, and then actionize all of the things that you have instructed them and given them to learn. Direct and develop and execute. Revive and refresh. Settle and secure. Heal and harvest. I always tell my team, my job is to harvest the greatness in you. And in order to do that, I've got to recognize greatness as great. 
invest and increase, partner and perpetuate. Don't be so caught up in your elevated position that you forget that yours is a partnership with your staff and with your team. You are partnering for the same mission. It's a partnership. It's not just servitude. So what do leaders think about? Well, they think about strategy. You know, strategy is big, vision is big, and strategy is bigger. But they also are thinking about goals and plans, innovation, solutions, ideas. Ideation is important. Your people should have sessions where they just ideate, not just brainstorm. Brainstorm is targeting a particular project or a particular uh, 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 venture. But ideation is just, let me just, what are some of the, if, if, if the sky was the limit, if all you had to do or if what you wanted to do, what would be some of your ideas? You want to know how they think. You want to know if God's talking to them and if they're listening and if what they're hearing is consistent with why they're with you. And so leadership, guidance, solution, vision, teamwork, direction, strategy, communication, all of that is the goal. And leadership is always about goals, always about goals, always about objectives, always about outcomes, always about assimilation, methodology. These are important things, and you don't hear Christian leaders talk like that. They don't use that kind of language. They are talking about how many people sat in the seat, how much money they collected. They're talking about how, how, how often they got a chance to preach. They talked about whatever they did, the last movie they watched. But when you're with that, in there, they don't have the conveyance of God's objectives or God's goals articulating in their mouth. They don't have it. To them, we're anointed. Oh, that boy ain't got nothing. And then people say, oh, he has it? No, he hasn't. I want to know how do you know? What makes you say that? What do you call something? So I understand why you're saying he has nothing. By now, you realize leadership requires you to adjust, adapt, and evolve. You must change. You, start, you cannot. See, we started this on this statement. You cannot enter a leadership post and promise people you won't change because that means you're breaking your promise to those who appointed you that you would change and upgrade. So you have to decide whether you are going to be a team, a team leader or whether you're going to be a supervisor, are you going to be entry-level management, middle management, senior management. And our job is to let you know, to let you, literally tell you where you are. Now, this one here we're not going to do today, but I want to end because we won't have the time. But I want, want to end on this. If you notice, this is a highway, and it says learning never So those of you who are in school waiting to get out of school so you don't have to learn anything else, (laughs) you are sorely mistaken. So let's look at this. Wisdom. Look at discernment. Scripture talks about discernment often. And the word discern means to sift. Discernment. How do you break things apart and sift them to get the benefit out of them? Well, the three things, the largest terms are wisdom. Distinction. The next one is tact and sense. And then we have perception. Now, all of these are the elements of it based on, based on intelligence. Discernment is an intelligence faculty. I bet you didn't know that. See, we thought discernment meant impression. 
You know, I have discerning of spirit, and I just see that there's a devil. No, that's an impression. And if you notice, that's not in here. You understand that's not in any of this. So much of what you've taught about discernment was to believe that it's an impression, how something strikes you as an impression. You know, but that's not discernment. Discernment is a faculty. And I want you to take time. I, I don't have it today, otherwise I would, we don't have the time. But I want you to take time and study the etymology of the word faculty and all of its definitions minus it's academia, minus it's university staff, all of that, none of that. Because what that, the, all of the staff definitions are to do is to tell you how they help their organization or what they do as an organizational function. So I want you to write this down. As a matter of fact, hashtag it. Discernment is not an impression. The reason it seems to be erratic and it's so errant is because your impressions are driven by your sentiments, by your beliefs, your desires, your wants, your preferences. Discernment is none of those things. Discernment is an operative, functional faculty. So in addition, it has acumen, understanding. It's a penetrative understanding. It's based on knowledge and awareness. It does have an element of insight. A discernment is it's motivated by sharpness or keenness. In other words, people who are discerned are sharp. Sharp means incisive. That means we cut to the quick. We cut between the two pieces. It's discretion, taste. It's a form of judgment, or it enables judgment. Lastly, you saw in the one sagacious. Sagacious is that, that long view of wisdom that goes beyond forecasting that you get from a person who has sage wisdom. We don't talk about that. We, and when we say sages, we go back to the rabbis, the rabbis. Like nobody else can have that. No. Mm-mm. If you look at the term, a lot of us aren't. A lot of us have sage wisdom. Where does it come from? It comes from a lot of trial and error. It comes from numerous fall downs and get back up. It comes from being duped a lot, deceived a lot. All of that goes into sagacity. You cannot be any more sage than you are exposed and experienced. So first exposure, then experience. First exposure, then experience. Now, why am I saying that? Because a lot of what, what you're disillusioned with today has stopped that exposure, and you think exposure and repetitious exposure equals experience. But you don't know what people, what they do with that exposure. Do they go and write their, get the cards, get the bylaws going and all of that? Or did they go and they study what they were exposed to and, and research it and find out where to place it in their wisdom stream? in their wisdom archive. So let's think about it. So when you talk about sage, because you know a lot of you are like, he's a sage, she's a sage. When, I, when you tell me you're a sage, this is what comes in my mind. I want to know all of this. I want to know the type of sage you are, what are the terms and conditions, and what are your targets, because nobody's a sage in everything. We all, it's a specialized aptitude. And so here we go. You're thinkers, you're diplomatic, Sound and skillful, sharp, uh, um, should be pundit, wise. How about sensible? 
shrewd. Do you know Christians can't be shrewd or smart because that's prideful. So if you are shrewd and you're in a church that can't stand shrewd, they're going to make you very uncomfortable. If you're under a leader who wants you to be religious and you're trying to be intelligent, you're going to have a problem. All right? Clever, scholastic, understanding, informed, circumspect. Circumspect is very good. That means you know how to behave in various circles. You watch yourself in different circles. Watch how you behave. Watch what you say. Watch what you yield to and what you agree to. I think that's pretty good. Judicious, philosophical, but experienced. It's very important that you understand that. These are all elements of discernment and its wisdom. So now you're in a leadership class, and it's a six-week class. Apostle Ashley, would you tell me what is the problem with that, if any? The whole program is only six weeks? Six weeks. You oh. get your you get your certificate in six weeks. Oh wow! <laughs> Everything is a problem with that. Um, you that's not anywhere near enough time to be converted or matured or germinated with what you need to be an effective leader. I mean, six weeks we're just barely knocking on the door of. My leader says I'm smart. You are definitely smart. I'm smart. Smart. Yep. And ready for leadership are yep. not necessarily the same thing. But they said I'm eager. And I show promise. You do. <laughs> That's what they told me. I show promise. I see it. You are very promising. Yes. And I promise to do good in my class. Okay. You do that. But that's just the beginning. But I've always been a smart learner all my life. Do you know when I was in school, they used to say I grasp things quickly. Well, I believe that because you qualify for this leadership class. But just know that what's in this six weeks is not enough for an entire discipline of knowledge. It's just telling people what to do. I mean, how hard is that? Well, that's bossing people around, which is not the same as leading them. I don't them. have a problem with bossing. I see that. Oh, did you see that? She doesn't have a problem with bossing. Do you all get the point? People will defend ineptitude, insufficiency. They will defend it. So I'm going to ask. Chief Prophet Thomas to tell me what, why discernment is important to leadership, since we know it's only about discerning spirits. Because without discernment, you can't um, make decisions, and leadership is all about the decisions that you make, since everything rises and falls on leadership. So when you put someone in position, um, your the education, going back to the six-week example, the education and training isn't just for you to get to know the organization, but to understand how to execute the mind of the organization and the decisions you make. I was and born with discernment. You were born with discernment? I was born with it. So you were, you were born with the ability to just automatically know what decisions you should make? I just follow my heart. Okay. But when you follow your heart, are you able to produce your heart tell you that? What the criteria is, what their policies are? The problem is that when I go and do things, people don't really get me. They don't get how I am and, and how I can do this. So usually I have to go and just kind of move on. But when I do leave, they do remember me. Uh, and yeah, but oh. they, I'm sure they do. And what do they remember about you? That's the question. They, 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 they remember, they remember that I knew my own mind and I made up my own mind and I could think for myself. And then, that's what they knew. But could they use your mind in their organization? I don't know because, well, we didn't get that far. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, prophet Angela, why should a prophet be a sage? A prophet should be a sage because the office was sent by wisdom, which means that the priority of the job is to actually represent, execute, materialize, and deploy wisdom itself and its answers into the lives of people and into the various systems in which we serve and build our civilization. Well, when I, I, they always said to me, and my mom said I was born with an old soul because I was wise as a, and so. Well, the earth was born with gold, but it took scientists, it took laws, it took technology to give you those earrings and that necklace. And so the same processes that the gold in the earth had to go through to become something that could have this particular use that you see in your wonderful fashion is the same processes that that soul that you were born with has to now be sent through in order to produce for God and for your sender, uh, the protocratic agent of wisdom, what it's after. Well, that just sounds too complicated for just somebody just to preach the gospel and just lead people to Jesus. I mean, I don't even understand why. I mean, if, if all I have to do is prophesy, I don't understand. I just, I'm lost. No, no, you will do much more than prophesy if you are going to sit in the office of the prophet. And so I understand that you feel lost because that is an example of how much you yet don't understand. But we're glad to bring you into the understanding so that you can be God's best product in the planet. Well, all right, but if it takes too long, I'm out. <laughs> Um, while we have just a little more time, anybody want to take, make a comment or a statement before we wrap up um, on, on all that we just said about leadership and its training and its selection? Thank you, Apostle Sally. I knew you had something to say. Absolutely. <laughs> I like the part that you said regarding your grade will show where you peak. I think that's very important uh, looking at these levels one through four um, because a lot of times we think that we're already at the peak <laughs> and it, it, your grade really, you know, shows your competence and everything and your skill and your knowledge. So there's a lot for a lot of us who are called to be professionals to take in regard to in this teaching of leadership because our footprint has not become everything it needs to be. We've got some balance yet to be. Amen. And then lastly, you, uh, Tina, well, if you knew it, then you already prepared, right? Uh-huh. She said I was reading it. <laughs> I'll come from the perspective of wisdom and how much time it takes, how much failure you may have to go, ups and downs in life. What looks like a failure may be just a teaching session with the Holy Spirit. This is the way I need this done. And so you have to increase your judgment as you go through that and listening to them and become more cellulated uh, with it. How you are uh, detecting it, I thought I'd give a scenario that I, I like to bake sweet potato pies. And on my journey to learn how, uh, I forget an egg so everything is just watery in the mm -hmm. oven. And the next time I decide to use whole milk instead of pet milk, okay, carnation, and the different flavors that it produced. Well, it had to be measured by family or whoever. Now I make the best pies because I finally found the right recipe of what worked and what didn't work. And so that pretty much could be like a saging. Mm -hmm. And even, uh, even in life, how you treat people. 
you treat people like this and you find out, well, that didn't work, this brought this. Like you were saying, as a leader, you cannot hang with people that are on a lower level, and you gave the consequence as your measurement. And so that is uh, impactful because you can say that, and people will be like, well, why not? Well, that's just being arrogant. That's just being, you know, you better than someone and all that. But you have to understand the uh, intelligence uh, behind it to increase your level of wisdom to go forth and functioning. Now, I could go on forever, but I'm going to hand this. Yeah, because I'll leave yeah. back. See, I got my cue. That was excellent. And I'll tell you, I'm getting the pie. I'm getting two pies. That's what I want. I want my pie. Did you see how I stepped right over there? But before, I want you to finish it up because I, I know what you have to say is very important. But I just want to say this. I'm not talking about snubbing people because they aren't leaders. I am talking about fraternizing to the point that your position becomes compromised and maybe even despised because of familiarity. Mm. You want to limit familiarity. Uh, my daughter and I have a common statement that we talk about all the time, and that is there is a place for leadership mystique. Oh, yeah, you taught us that class maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I think for the first time, hmm, as a class. But uh, was it a great class, yeah. leadership today? And we're kicking off your birthday oh, today really? with just a note of, yeah, your birthday's on Monday. Oh, okay. But, you know, this is Thursday, so it's either we're going to hit it, <laughs> just like, really? We're either going to hit it before or after your birthday. And so Rachel said, do we want to do something today or Yay. next week? So we're doing something today. Happy early birthday. Oh, Happy pre-birthday. You have, now you have to stand here and hold it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> And we're just rolling it out. So, you know, Sunday. So Monday is Dr. Price's official birthday. Yes. But we have no church on Monday or anything like that. But, um, and then the the church? Huh? (laughs) No. We'll handle it. All right. I'm there for you. You know, we just talked about me partnering with you. Oh, yeah. Her party is in March, March 12th. It's a Saturday. Obviously, it's not a surprise party because what's the point? Because you all tried that. We have succeeded a few times. And one time you were under tremendous duress in warfare. That's the only reason it worked, and we certainly don't want to repeat that. (laughs) So the party is in March, but Monday is Dr. Price's birthday. And so uh, we just wanted to roll this out and say happy early. I'm sure we'll be celebrating you for at least a month. At least. I got 70 up there. That's a long birthday celebration, you know. Oh, you want 70 days? <laughs> 70 days of celebration. I don't know. Uh, hey. <laughs> okay. But we just wanted to uh, close today's broadcast with Thank that, you. with the lovelies and acknowledging that we appreciate you being born ah, and being around. Thank you. And thank this you month. all. I'm looking forward to my 70th year of life. I've gotten some very interesting words from different people who told me what 70 means and where I'm going, so I'm looking forward to it. I really thought 70 would be a lot more distasteful, and it isn't. I'm thrilled about that. But I thank God. Now, listen, I want you to share this. Share, 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 and share, share, share again. 
um, leaders use it. Use the training. Listen to it repeatedly so you can get it all in your spirit. And you can, I'm sure by now it's answered a lot of questions, maybe filled in some blanks and closed out some other matters for you. I would also like to encourage you to sow a seed. I've sown something very, very, I think very extensive, very magnificent, and I didn't charge you for it, but I want you to act like I charged you and sow a seed because God wants this to prosper. Don't just say, hey, I got it and, you know, God gave it to her so it belongs to me. Don't do that. Because, you know, understand that the thought and intent of that is not going to be what God wants. So we see, I think um, Rachel has it on site. Don't forget to get your dunamite drills and to get your thanks for the feedback, because I'm sure I gave you a feedback class today, and also now that you are a leader. I love you all very much. I bless all of you who have been sowing and supporting me so far. I really thank God for you. And, uh, and I'm asking God to release your harvest. I'm removing every adversary against your harvest. I command every, every infestation in your life that has been suffocating your growth, suffocating your prosperity, even suffocating your opportunities to be disintegrated by the Holy Ghost. I switch out your guard. I call in the guards that are for your future. I retire and I relieve from duty the guards that have gotten you this far that you may prosper in the days to come because you have taken care of God's business. I want you to know God's going to take care of yours. And don't forget to go back and listen to the broadcast, God is Disturbed, and my interview last night with Apostle Dewan Holmes. Did I get it right? Correct. All right, because I'm going to get it all right. It should be on my site. It's not on my site yet, but we'll see to it that you get there. Uh, and then... Text me. Let me know what you think. And as you use these things that I've given you, share. You can inbox me and say, you know, Dr. Price, I use that. This is what happened. It was really wonderful, and we did this. I love you much. God bless you. If you're in the Tulsa area, join us at the embassy, home of the Congregation of the Mighty, where God stands, 8 o'clock Sunday school and 10 o'clock service. We are on the Dunamite journey. God bless. Anyway.